I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. Hello there. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host, that woman who now loves to share all the many ancient sources with you all whenever possible. Live. 
And well, obviously, today's episode is one of those instances. We're at a point in this show where I have covered all of the most famous myths and now get to dive into things like plays more often. Or I will get to some ancient novels soon, uh, but gods, they are more time consuming, and so I'm putting them off. Or in the case of today's episode, I'm going to look at a story that I told in a like maybe 12 minute mini myth almost six years ago, and which has so, so, so much more to it than I was able to convey to you in those olden days when my knowledge was so different, so limited. We are talking about Daphne, of course. Uh, you've seen her name in this episode's description already, so you know. That nymph so famous for turning herself into a tree in order to escape that often dangerous god, Apollo. A quick note that this is a particularly graphic story of attempted assault. It is no Procne and Philomela, of course, but it is explicit uh, if you need to take care of yourself and avoid it. Apollo and Daphne's story appears most famously in Ovid's Metamorphoses, so today we're going to look at that, particularly in the new and incredible translation by Stephanie McCarter. Oh my god, did you listen to her episode with me? Fuck. God, I love this translation. Uh, and we're going to look at other sources, though. All the other sources which speak of that nymph and her relationship, whatever, with Apollo. Or sometimes she's just a mortal woman who is turned into the laurel tree. We're going to look at it all. She and that tree are oh so famous and their story spans so many sources in the world of ancient Greek mythology. She is so much more than just a tragic moment in Ovid and that absolutely unbelievable statue by Bernini. So many listeners actually listen to that really old episode and then they scroll through almost six years worth of my Instagram just to find the time that I posted a photo of that piece uh, and the one that's uh, Hades and Persephone, basically, Proserpine and Pluto. I'm not going to cut that out. I almost forgot his Roman name. Um, because honestly, though, Bernini, it makes me happy every time you guys go back and like those ancient photos. If I'm loving anything that's not the classical world, it's fucking Bernini. But today isn't about him. It's about Daphne. Daphne in all of her many forms. This is episode 208. Apollo, god of traumatic transformations. The many mythologies of Daphne. Since it is both the most famous and memorable and obviously the most beautiful and detailed slash the only detailed version of this story, we are going to start by looking again at Ovid's telling of Daphne's story, but particularly how it's translated by Stephanie McCarter, who you will all remember from that conversation episode from last year. I'm pretty obsessed with her translation, uh, and I already was, but when I saw that she titled this story as just Apollo attempts to rape Daphne, I was reminded why it's so important. There's no pretending that this isn't a violent and horrible act, no like euphemizing or suggesting that because he's a god that somehow it implies consent that isn't there. It's just the story. Ovid told it, and it is a dark one. Daphne was the daughter of a man named Peneus, and as Ovid describes, and certainly as Apollo himself would, Daphne was Apollo's first love. Apollo, meanwhile, was not Daphne's. But I'm getting ahead of myself. 
That she was his first love is very explicit in Ovid. It's both a commentary on the god himself and his love for others. It's a placement in the chronology of Ovid, but it's also a reminder of how early their story must come if one is trying to fathom generally chronology and myth. And that is because of what Daphne will transform herself into. Apollo's sacred tree, where he gets his sacred wreath. But until then, Daphne was just a woman who encountered the god and was unlucky enough to do so with Cupid, Eros, nearby. It's the god of love who makes Apollo fall in love with Daphne, not chance but divine intervention. Apollo was feeling full of himself, having defeated the famous Python, where he would go on to found the Oracle of Delphi, and he'd taken to bragging of his incredible feat of heroism. And not only that, but he told Cupid himself that that Cupid wasn't manly enough to handle the bow and arrow that he so famously carried, since Apollo carried it too and considered himself far above the god of love in his skill. Cupid, as one might imagine, wasn't a fan of listening to Apollo's boasts or the suggestion that he wasn't capable of handling the weapon that he was literally famous for, and so he determined to show his cousin, at least I think they're cousins, how he handles people who annoy him and insult him. After Apollo had given a little speech about how poorly Cupid handled his bow, Cupid bit back, quote, Your bow hits all marks, Phoebus, but mine hits you. Your glory yields to mine as much as animals to gods. Translation, you might be good at killing things with that, but I'm good at hitting my marks too. And Cupid's marks, when he hit them, didn't die, but fell in love. And isn't that sometimes worse? From the top of Mount Parnassus, Cupid drew two arrows from his magical quiver. One causes love and the other repels it. I've called them this before, but I will continue to do so. They are the love and the loathe arrows. With the loathe arrow knocked, Cupid took aim and he shot it at Daphne and he let it fly. It hit its mark, of course, he's Cupid. And with the love arrow knocked next, Cupid aimed and shot at Apollo. Once again, bullseye. Meanwhile, Daphne, Daphne was a nymph of Thessaly, the daughter of this river god Peneus, at least according to Ovid. That she is a nymph seems to cross all the stories, though. She was a nymph of the forest and rivers, the wilds, and gods did she love it. Quote, Daphne delights in forest lairs and spoils of beasts, unwed Diana's devotee. Daphne is devoted to Artemis, Diana, the goddess of the hunt, whose nymph entourage vowed to remain unmarried. Note the word used here in this translation is unwed, not virgin. I did not make it clear in my earlier episodes about topics like these, so I will remind you again. Virgin in these types of sources doesn't necessarily mean what we think it means. Sometimes it means that the nasty misogynist idea of purity, but more often than not, it just means they didn't get married. And as my own fun theory goes, they got to retain these titles, like even that of virgin, regardless of what these nymphs and women uh, did to other nymphs and women behind closed doors or, you know, amongst the trees. (laughs) The issue at hand for the Greeks writing these stories was just uh, no dudes. If there were no dudes, then virginity remained. And hey, who's complaining about no dudes? I mean, really. Ovid drills this point into his readers. Daphne did not want to get married. 
although many, many men had sought her out and they'd attempted to court her to get her to marry them, but, quote, she did not want a man and never had. And Daphne stood her ground, too, even when her father would tell her that she owed him grandsons. We're told, quote, she hated wedlock like a crime. Ugh, gods, again, the respect I have for her and also the obsession I have with this translation. But Daphne knew how to get her father on her side. She wouldn't marry, and so she appealed to his softer side, his fatherly side. She asked him directly to let her always remain a virgin, unmarried, to let her remain with Diana and the nymphs in the life that made her feel so happy, so fulfilled. But for all she won over her father, quote, What you want, your grace forbids, your beauty thwarts your prayer. Translation, a woman's desire for freedom doesn't overpower a god's lust, a god's desire for power and control. Apollo loves Daphne, or so he believes. He loves her because the god of love forced it upon him, hit him with that love arrow that caused an overwhelming and unquenchable desire. There are many stories where Apollo is problematic as fuck, but here we can still blame Cupid to a large extent. It brings up too many questions about self-control in the face of divinity, though, so I'm just not going to dwell on it. But the point is Apollo fucking wants her. He wants her so badly, it's all he can think about. He thinks about their wedding and their wedding night, and he thinks about it as he speaks to his oracle, as she tells him what he wants to hear. He just, he thinks about Daphne always. He burns for her just the thought of her. Quote, like stubble burning at the end of harvest, or like a hedge lit by a traveler's torch brought in too close, or left at dawn, just so the god went up in flames. His whole heart burns. So Apollo just watches her. He watches Daphne wherever she is, he stares at her, he memorizes everything about her. He looks at her hair, and he wonders what it would look like styled differently. He, he looks at her bare skin, her clothes, and he thinks about what else he can't see beneath them, what parts of her are covered by those clothes. Quote, the parts he cannot see, he thinks, are better. But Daphne just runs. She gets the fuck away from him, running as fast as she can and avoiding him with everything that she has in her, even as he calls her back. He calls to her, asks her to wait, tells her he's not her enemy, that that isn't why he's chasing her, and yet he calls out, you're running as if in danger, quote, Lambs flee from wolves like this, or deer from lions. Like this, wings fluttering doves flee from the eagle. All things their foes, but I chase out of love. He suggests that he's concerned for her. He doesn't want her to trip and fall, to injure herself. He tells her there's rough ground ahead, that she should slow, and he'll slow too. Oh, he says he's just... He's so concerned for her well-being. 
And I mean, dude, Apollo, I know you're under a god spell, but maybe she wouldn't run if you didn't chase her. Still, logic is beyond him. And besides, he's Apollo, so he keeps chasing her and she keeps running. Finally, he pulls the do you know who I am card and calls out to Daphne asking her if she's not even curious to know who it is that's seeking her with such vigor. He tells her that he's no brute, no hairy shepherd, no, no, no. He says, you don't know who I am and that's why you're running. Finally, he gets explicit. After telling her all the realms that belong to him, he says, quote, Jove is my father. Through me, what was, what is, and what will be is known. Through me, songs harmonize on strings. He goes on telling her that he invented medicine. He's a healer. Oh, if only his own drugs could help him now, he says to himself. And oh, what do you know? None of this works because regardless of who it is that's pursuing her in the hopes of marrying her or taking her or she can only imagine assaulting her, she doesn't want him. Weird. I know. Apollo certainly can't fathom it. He doesn't understand the word no. But then, which of the gods do? No, instead, as she runs and runs fast through the woods, Apollo thinks only of how much prettier she is as she runs, how her hair moves in the wind, how her beauty grows the more she runs. And it's in that moment, the realization that she's only becoming more attractive to him, that causes him to give up on sweet talk, on trying to convince her. And instead, he picks up his speed. He picks up the chase. He will catch her, he thinks. That is all there is to it. He must catch her. Quote, it's just like when a Gallic dog has seen a hare inside an empty field. On foot, one seeks his prize, the other one her safety. The barking, snapping dog simile continues. Apollo is a dog, a hunting dog, seeking his prey. He's violent and dangerous, and it is made more and more clear the more he chases after her. He chases her with hope, and she runs from him in abject fear. But he's got the god of love on his side, and she is all alone. Quote, he gives no rest. He's right behind her back and breathes into the hair across her neck. Her strength is gone. She's pale, subdued by flight. And just as she is forced to wonder how she will manage to escape or whether it's even possible, whether he'll catch her and what he will do to her when he does, Daphne sees her father's river, Peneus. She sees the waters before her and she cries to him for help. Quote, if these streams of yours are holy, destroy what makes me pleasing. Change my form. Destroy what makes her pleasing. Ugh, gods, if that isn't a commentary upon the lives of women far beyond mythology, I don't know what is. It can't be about stopping Apollo. That's not possible. He can't be stopped. Instead, it's about having to change her, about making her less appealing to the god who seeks to rape her. But what were you wearing, Daphne? Was it revealing? Did you tempt him? He can't possibly help himself. You were just asking for it. Daphne gets her wish, even if it's horrifying, if unsurprising that she had to. Quote, her prayer just spoken 
Dull weight grips her limbs as slender bark unfolds her supple torso. Her hair sprouts up as leaves, her arms as branches. A stiff root clasps her foot, just now so swift. The treetop takes her mouth, just her gleam remains. And you know what the first line is after Daphne has been transformed? After she's been forced to ask for her entire body, her entire being and consciousness to be altered forever just to escape Apollo's assault? The first line after that happens is, Apollo loves this too. He touches her. He rubs her bark, her branches, quote, he feels her chest still trembling beneath the brand new bark and hugs the boughs like arms, kissing the wood which still resists his kiss. He manages to sexually assault her even as a fucking tree. And then he decides he's still so in fucking love with her even as a tree, a tree she was forced to transform into to escape his clutches, that he will make her his tree. She's become the laurel tree, and he's going to make it his own. He'll wear her leaves in his hair. He'll use her wood to make the lyre his quiver. And he adds, since he'll remain young and beautiful forever, and she'll be tucked into his hair, so will she remain young and beautiful forever. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick 
and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fucking Apollo, right? And Cupid, for that matter, since they're both pretty heavily to blame in that story. Gods. The Greek word for laurel, too, is just Daphne. So her truly, her name is just the tree. Though in English, it's a little bit less impactful. The version of this story by Ovid is certainly the most famous. It's the most detailed, the most horrifying, the most sympathetic to Daphne. But it's also obviously from Rome, and even features some additional notes that directly align the laurel wreath with the Roman emperors. Did I ignore that part in my retelling? Because meh? Yes. The point is that it's Roman. It's late. But the concept of Daphne, laurel, as sacred to Apollo, and this transformation being part of it, is far, far more ancient. There was apparently a historian in the 3rd century named Philarchos who wrote about this. I say apparently because... We know of his work and this story from another later writer who is referencing him. Through this later writer, Parthenius, we learn an earlier and very different take on the story of Daphne and Apollo. In this version, Daphne is not the daughter of Peneus, but a man named Amyclas. Here also, Daphne preferred the wilds of the forest, hunting with her dogs. She did this, we hear, not in Thessaly like in Ovid, but in the Peloponnese, maybe Laconia or deep in the mountains beyond. This love of hunting, of wilderness, ensured that even in this earlier Greek tradition, Daphne is aligned closely with Artemis. It was Artemis who gifted her with a straight shot with her bow and arrows. On one of the many occasions where Daphne found herself out in the mountains, in the woods, hunting, she came upon a man named Leucippus. She was an Elis this time, and he was the son of a man named Enemaeus. Surprise, surprise, when she came upon Leucippus, he determined that he'd fallen in love with her. Because, you know, men of Greek myth and a pretty woman out in the woods. But Leucippus decides. Well, he decides that he doesn't want to try to woo her, to convince her to love him back in any conventional way. We get no reason for this, but perhaps it's due to the fact that we know Daphne was different, wasn't like the other women that Leucippus was used to. 
manic pixie dream girl, maybe. Regardless, he decides that he wanted to seduce her through straight-up trickery. Good guy. How would he trick her? Well, he disguised himself as a young woman and joined her on the hunt. When he appeared as a woman, she trusted him, trusted him to come along with her out in the further depths of the forest, and it worked. Daphne liked Leucippus in his disguise, perhaps an indication that she really just preferred women after all. She loved him, or rather, who she thought was a her. They'd embraced, they'd stayed close together, and Apollo noticed. You can't have this story without Apollo, after all. Though here we get no reason for it, Apollo seems to love Daphne again, or rather, want her. Without Cupid involved, I don't really believe there's any reason why Apollo could actually feel something resembling love. Instead, he he wanted her. And as a god, he wasn't willing to let anyone else get in his way, let alone let someone else show interest in what he wanted. So he got jealous. Very jealous. So he used his divine abilities to convince her to go and to find a nice pool in which to bathe with her attendants, women she kept with her on her travels and hunts. So they did. They, they found a nice pool and they began to take off their clothes in preparation for bathing in this pool. But of course, Lucippus in his disguise wouldn't follow suit. It would give him away. They became suspicious and eventually forced him to undress. They learned of the deceit he'd used, how he'd convinced them for so long, so grossly taking advantage of Daphne. And so she and her attendant women plunged their spears into his chest over and over and over again. Until he disappeared. He didn't die, he just disappeared by the will of the gods. And that's when Daphne saw Apollo coming for her, clearly involved in all of it. And she ran. She ran far and she ran fast, but Apollo was faster. He was a god, after all. And here she called out to Zeus, of all people, to hide her from sight. And thus she became the laurel tree. The Daphne tree. Pausanias tells us a similar story of Daphne, Leucippus, and Apollo. A biographer of the 1st and 2nd century CE, Philostratus, tells us that it was actually in Antioch, modern Turkey, where the Assyrians told a story of transformation. They say it was there Daphne transformed after the pursuit of Apollo, and that she was the daughter of Ladon, a river there. They have this story because there was a temple of Apollon Daphnaeus, Apollo of the Laurel. Another source tells us yet another interpretation of Daphne, where once again she's the daughter of this Ladon, but the Ladon of Arcadia in the Peloponnese instead. Pseudo-Hyenus, a mythographer of Rome, has Daphne call out not to her father, but to her mother, Gaia herself, Mother Earth, to be transformed. And there is still another reference to Daphne, again from Pausanias, but a different region entirely. Here Pausanias tells us of Delphi, the seat of Apollo's oracle. And there, he says, there were stories of a much earlier oracular seat that didn't belong to Apollo at all, but to Gaia. And it was Gaia who had a prophetess named Daphnis, a nymph of Mount Parnassus, who reigned as oracle long before Apollo ever stole it away. 
Pausanias, remember, was a Roman period travelogue who went around the Greek mainland asking questions, asking for local myths and stories and references. And so we get these very unique things through him really explicitly. We love him for that. He's fascinating. But it also connects back to something that is known with a bit more certainty, as far as I understand. There was an earlier oracle, one older than the most famous one. And that one was much more specifically connected with Earth, with Gaia, with no man around at all. This is more evidence for exactly that. And a kind of mother goddess, goddess-based worship there, which would have been connected with the Castalian Spring, which is the spring of fresh water that runs through Parnassus and out near the site of Delphi. Like even today you can drink from it. Daphne there might have also been connected with the nymphs of a nearby and equally famous cave, the Corcyrian Cave on the side of Parnassus. It's Ovid, though, who gives us this involvement of Eros, Cupid, and Apollo being divinely inspired to his obsession with Daphne, with claiming her, causing her transformation. Her transformation is also primarily from Ovid, though her becoming a tree does exist earlier, even if it's just like an explanation for how the tree came to be. But it's Ovid that makes it tragic, visceral, dangerous. And it's only in the Roman period where we get these visual depictions that actually show Daphne physically transforming into a tree. Meanwhile, though the stories themselves, at least the ones that survive for us today, aren't particularly ancient in the grand scheme of things, the idea of Apollo chasing after a woman certainly is older. There are 5th century red figure pottery pieces that show this, like this chase, though we don't necessarily know if it's meant to be Daphne or one of the other women that Apollo did something similar to, like Coronis, another famous instance of a woman who wanted nothing to do with him. I've told that story before too. She's the mother of Asclepius, the god of medicine, and Apollo's son born of Coronis's tragic death. Because gods, who of all the people, men and women, that Apollo loves or lusts for doesn't have a life that ends tragically, either by horrible death or transformation into a tree. Not only transformed, but like Daphne forced to forever grace the brow of the man who not only attempted to rape her in her nymph form, but still managed to assault her, even once she'd become a tree. Oh, nerds. You know what's fun? That knowing I've done this episode on one of Apollo's many crimes, which exist in the ancient sources, clearly, uh, might get me some angry people in my DMs or my comments. Pissed off that I insulted Apollo. Something about him. Something about him. Yeah, it's happened before. So I'll just say to whoever might wish to do that, I am sorry that your god has so many stories of assault and tragic death. That's only ancient Greeks. It's not on me. Life's wild. Anyway, uh, as you, as always, um, thank you so much for listening. I was really excited to tell this story again because, like, not only has it somehow been almost six fucking years, but it's such a beautiful, if horrifying, story. And I was also just really desperate to read Stephanie McCarter's new translation and share it all with you. It makes all the difference, let alone the fact that, like, I have, I now have the resources to dive into all those other varying and interesting versions of their story, all those things that existed long before Ovid took it and kind of made it his own. While I know I'm not even close to running out of Greek myth content to share with you all, ultimately, I have gotten through many of the shorter stories, but I still try to make sure that like not every episode is part of a longer series, which is where stories like this come in. 
stories that I've told in 10 or so minutes so many years ago, but which have so much more to them, let alone like that they just deserve more interesting and detailed attention like this one. Like, gods, it's so fun. Um, so anyway, thanks for being here. As always, let's finish this off with a lovely five-star review from one of you amazing listeners. Consider leaving me one. They make me happy and they help the show keep growing and thus, um, you know, keep going. This one is from a user called Ari McKay from Australia. I love it. I have been binge listening to this podcast for the last month, and I swear that the love Liv has for Greek mythology is contagious. I started listening because I've got a large break between high school and uni and just happened to discover my new interest. I've been listening on Spotify, but I came over here in order to tell you how much I love this podcast. The more I listen, the more I love it. This podcast has awakened a huge curiosity within me and given me a love for Greek myths. Not only do I listen to the myths, but also for her feminist perspective is so relevant these days and putting the myths in modern day context is so important. Recognizing the similarities within our cultures just shows us how far we still have to go to get true equality. Keep up the great work. Thank you. That was really lovely. Love to hear that. Let's Talk About Miss Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Uh, Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians. She handles so many podcast-related things. Honestly, she's the absolute best. I couldn't do it without her. Same with Stephanie Foley, who works to transcribe the podcast for po- for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by iHeartMedia. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron. We'll get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash missbaby or click the link in this episode's description. Sometimes I record a bunch of episodes at once, and so I say that too many times. Thank you all. You're seriously cool for loving and listening to all these stories, and I fucking love getting to tell them to you, particularly with all these skills that I've got now. Like, I'm proud of this one, so thanks for being here. I'm Liv, and I love this shit. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. 
Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 